Welcome to the Governance Podcast at the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. My name is David Edgerton. I'm a professor here in the Department of History, and I'm very pleased today to welcome Terence Keeley to the podcast. Terence Keeley is Professor of Clinical Biochemistry at the University of Buckingham, where he served as Vice-Chancellor until 2014. In 1996, he published his first book, the Economic Laws of Scientific Research, where we argued that, contrary to the conventional wisdom, governments need not fund science. His second book, sci- sci- uh, his second book is called Sex, Science and Profit, 2008, which argues that science is not a public good, but rather is organised in an invisible colleges, thereby making government funding irrelevant. Thanks so much for joining us uh, uh, today, Terence. Now, you and I have known each other for for many years, um, you started life as a as a as as, as a scientist, as, as I did in, 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 indeed, and we've both found our way uh, to thinking about the place of science and society, science in the in the economy. How how did you start on this path? Well, we've known each other for well over thirty years, um, and what is interesting is the parallelism between what happened to you and what happened to me, in that. Um, we got to know each other during the 1980s when there was this huge public dis- dispute, really, argument, uh, concern, uh, that British science was in decline. And there was a similar debate in America, actually, that American science was, was in decline. And you and I, from very different perspectives, realised it wasn't true. You can speak to your own perspective as a historian critical of the declinist theory. I can just tell you what it was like at the bench. There I was at the bench, first in Oxford, when you will remember in 1985, Mrs Thatcher was very publicly refused an honorary degree because of the terrible damage she was doing to British science. And shortly afterwards, I moved to the University of Newcastle. And everywhere I went, I was being told by my fellow scientists what a terrible state British science was in. And when in Oxford I pointed out that I'd never seen so many researchers packed into increasingly crowded labs, and I'd never seen so many new buildings going up to accommodate this wave of new researchers. At the very time we were being told that British science is in decline, it was explained to me that Oxford, Cambridge and London, the Golden Triangle, was being protected by a devious government, but the rest of the nation's science was a desert. I then got a job at Newcastle, where I noticed exactly the same phenomenon. I'd never seen so many scientists packed like sardines into so many labs. I'd never seen so many new labs going up. And everyone was telling me that British science was in decline. And when I challenged this, I was told that I didn't understand, that for electoral reasons, this devious government was supporting science in the provinces because that's where the votes were. But the heart of British science, the Golden Triangle, was a desert. And that's when I realised two things. First of all, We were being actively misled, to put it kindly. Uh, But secondly, what was most interesting was the ease with which researchers ignored the evidence of their own eyes because they were more interested in subscribing to a paradigm, obviously a very useful paradigm if you're trying to lobby for more government funding. And so really out of a sense of outrage, I pointed out that this was all just nonsense. And the one community that should not have been propagating such nonsense was the community of research scientists. And where, where did you uh, uh, 
develop your thoughts uh, about this in 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 in, a, in, a, in pamphlets, in newspaper articles. I mean, it's it's very unusual for 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 for, for a scientist to be writing a, about the economics of science uh, uh, at all, especially from from the positions that you were taking. I I wonder where you've you found the space to articulate your criticisms. Well, that is a very perceptive question because. Scientists work very, very hard, and it's a very competitive field, science. And so by engaging in this, there's no question that I damaged... I'm not complaining, by the way, I'm just saying. There's no question that I damaged my scientific career, both in terms of the effort that I should have been putting into the lab, I was putting into other activities, but also in terms of friendships that were threatened, or rather patronage networks that were threatened. I remember... Uh, a very nice man, he, he's now dead, and he became a good friend of mine called Alan Cuthbert. He was professor of pharmacology at Cambridge, and he liked me a lot. But I, I will never forget him telling me when my first article came out, he said, well, there goes your fellowship of the Royal Society, Terence. Uh, it was kind because the idea that I would be a fellow of the Royal Society was clearly nonsense, but he was also trying to say something about the politics. So to answer your question, um, uh, I was inspired by an article that Dennis Noble, a very great man, by the way, uh, he as an individual is a, is a true gentleman, uh, but he'd written an article in the Independent newspaper saying that British science is in decline and all that, and I wrote an article for them saying it just wasn't true, and I've never forgotten their uh, editor, not their, their opinions editor, saying, I remember the exact words he used, he said, this is not the sort of article that our readers will want to read. So in the end, I sent it to The Spectator, uh, because it was the sort of article that their readers would have wanted to read. They were great supporters of the Thatcher. But to answer your question, I was completely self-taught, and I look back on my early um, years as a political writer of science, uh, I can see now that in many respects I was naive, but I don't, def I don't bemoan my naivety. I was reduced and forced to look at the actual data because I didn't have a theory. So I actually looked at the data on numbers of scientists produced, for example, by what was then called the Committee of Vice Chancellors and Principals. Every year they produced a report on British universities. There were the numbers of scientists going up. Um, I, I read um, a very good book by Derek Dezola Price, Little Science, Big Science, pointing out that science has been doubling since 1750, every 12 years. And it was that sort of data produced by mainly other scientists that enabled me to point out that what we were being told by the essentially non-scientists was simply not true. But I, I, I imagine you were um, politically engaged in, in, in some way at, 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 at this time. And perhaps it would be interesting to know what, what sort of things you, you, were, you were reading outside science or what, what, uh, what positions you were taking in, in this uh, uh, rather strained uh, uh, political atmosphere of the, of the 1980s where, where very, very clearly there was a, a, a Thatcherite revolution uh, going on. You're absolutely right. And um, I had started off like everybody else in this world by calling myself and actually feeling myself at the age of 18 to have been a socialist. What had a very, very damaging effect on my socialism, in fact, turned me against socialism, was my experience of the British National Health Service. I was a medical student and then a doctor. And I believed then, and I absolutely now know that at the time it was just an instinct that that form of delivery of health care 
was extremely disadvantageous to patients. We now know, for example, that the levels of health outcomes in continental Europe where health systems have not been nationalised, they're highly supported by the state, but they're not nationalised, are markedly superior to those we get in Britain. I'm not going to defend the American system, which is too far the other way, but my experience of the British Health Service, which I'd entered with such uh, idealism, had been shattered by a, a, a myriad of experiences where it was obvious the health service was not delivering, and so I increasingly became more and more a believer in markets, and I regretted the nationalisation of health. And so when the whole Thatcher thing happened after she got elected, I was absolutely sympathetic to the idea that we had to move away from this corporate socialist state into a much more free market state. I think we got too far the other way. But I was absolutely on the side of Thatcher in 79 than I was on the side of Michael Foote, whereas, of course, most British scientists were always on the side of Michael Foote. That's very interesting. In the uh, 80s, you, you're pointing out the, the, the labs are getting fuller and fuller. University labs uh, is what you're, what you're referring to. Now, I assume that most of the, 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 the money that, that paid for all those new researchers was, was government money. Uh, your argument, as it, as it developed over the years, was that governments need not fund uh, research in universities or or, or, or elsewhere. So you were, you're effectively saying that the Thatcher governments were uh, spending too much on scientific research. No, that was, I think, my great insight, my discovery. It wasn't my own discovery, but I discovered something I hadn't heard of before. There's no question that Thatcher, particularly in 1981, cut budgets for British university science. And some universities, Aston, for example, um, were really badly hit. But everyone was badly hit. Everyone. Every, even Oxford and Cambridge were hit because there was a reduction of infrastructural money. But also there was a reduction in research council money. It was nothing like as big as people said. But when you consider that government funding for science in this country had basically grown exponentially since 1914, this was a knock that was taken very, very badly by the scientists. My astonishment, and this absolutely came out of the Committee of Vice-Chancellors and Principals, they absolutely chronicled this, was that for every pound Mrs. Thatcher's government withdrew from the universities, the private sector in the form of pharmaceutical companies or the Wellcome Trust or other philanthropic bodies or just industry was putting in two pounds. It's, a, it's an astonishing difference. And that's when I discovered a phenomenon I'd never heard of before called crowding out. And that's when I realised what the government funding of science had done is it had crowded out the private funding, and for every pound it put in, it was crowding out two pounds. It was actually detrimental even to academic science. But the great, the great bulk of the money going into the universities from the so-called private sector is, 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 is surely charitable money from the Wellcome, Wellcome Trust and cancer research and, and so on, and highly focused on the, uh, uh, the biomedical uh, sector. That statement is true, uh, but before too many caveats come in, let's not forget that that is where science is today. I mean, physics is a very interesting science, and chemistry is a very interesting science, and back in the 19th century, I understand they were quite important. But today, we are in the field of molecular biology, and one of the nice aspects of the world today is it's the sort of stuff that the Cancer Research Campaign, as it was then called, it's got a different name now, was doing on the basic principles of cell uh, proliferation. In fact, that is where molecular biology is today, and molecular biology is where science is today. So yes, it's true that it might have been focused on heart disease or cancer or whatever, but that's where biology was going anyway. Now, the, the Thatcher government's um, 
presented themselves as as uh, uh, wanting to reverse the the British decline, and many of the people arguing for more investment in in research argued that the British decline since the 1870s had been caused by a lack of investment in in research. So you might imagine that the Thatcher governments uh, would in fact uh, launch a, a, a program of of such investments. So it's interesting to, to see today that the, the, the Brexiters, including Dominic Cummings, are, are talking about increases in government funding for research and um, the creation of a, of a British ARPA um, uh, uh, to exploit these great British uh, British inventions. Why why weren't the Thatcher governments pursuing that 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 policy of investment in research well you are absolutely right there has always been a nationalist desire i mean it goes all the way back to lord derby in the 19th century that the conservatives more than the liberals i mean gladstone was opposed to the government funding of science it was the conservatives in those days for nationalist reasons who wanted to create this big and you've written about this much more than i have about this nationalist vision of britain as a warfare state these are your words not mine um and if I can just tell you a little anecdote, um, in the 80s, I was asked on a number of occasions, and of course it was a great honour, though it was also a stressful occasion, to, to advise Mrs. Thatcher on aspects of science policy, economic policy. Um, um, and she was interested in my views, and I was interested in giving her my views. But in the end, it became quite an unsuccessful exercise because I was then very much a classical liberal. Mrs. Thatcher wasn't. She was very much a conservative. And there was one particular episode when I was asked to spend half an hour discussing science with her science funding and particular Nobel Prizes. And I remember this comment. It was just the two of us in a room just like this with you and me. And, And she said to me, she opened the conversation by saying, well, she said, the one thing we need is more Nobel Prizes. And I said, well, it's not quite so clear. And no, she said, we need more Nobel Prizes. Well, I said, if you could say, no, she said. And she kept on interrupting. She was actually quite a difficult person to have a conversation with. It's, it's not a cliche, well, maybe a cliche, but she actually was a difficult person to get a word in edgeways. In the end, I couldn't get a word in edgeways. So finally, I said, you mean like the Soviet Union? And she absolutely understood what I was saying, because the Soviet Union in those days was winning lots of Nobel Prizes, and its economy was terrible. Japan had won no Nobel Prizes, effectively, very few, and its economy was fantastic. And she immediately understood, because she was no fool, what I was getting at. And she looked at me, and she gave an answer I've always thought was very, very funny. She said, don't be so silly, young man. Which was her way of saying, oh, you got me there, and I don't know the answer. But the point is, she did believe in a strong science base. It's just, if you look at the data in the very, very late 70s, early 80s, the only other country in the world whose government was funding science even more generously than our own was the Netherlands. And the Netherlands was also going through a terrible crisis economically, and the Netherlands government was also cutting back. So what Mrs. Thatcher was seeking to do then was to reduce all budgets, including science budgets, as part of a general housekeeping, to use a sort of housekeeping language. But the moment the economy recovered, she was very much back into funding science, like good conservatives so often do. I see. Right. So, so yes, I see. So, so you don't see her as following through on um, the uh, 
liberal arguments uh, from Gladstone onwards. Uh, no, and, and look at the government funding of science. Look at her reaction when it, it was suggested we might do some privatisation in the health service in the early eighties. She she crushed that. She absolutely wanted to liberate the market. So the commanding heights of the economy that had been nationalised by the Labour Party, steel, coal, all those things. She was very keen to privatise those. Mm. But what she perceived to be a sort of Bismarckian state where. Mm. The, the social services would be absolutely under the control of the state. She didn't want to relinquish those at all. She was a Bismarckian, I think. Terence, let me put this to you, that in uh, 1981, um, well, let's say 1979, the British R&D GDP ratio was higher than it was in 1990 when Margaret Thatcher left, left office. That's to say, the, the essentially the private sector dom- dominating uh, overall R and D uh, uh, funding uh, was spending less on research, at least a proportion of GDP, at the end of the Thatcher period. Uh, that doesn't seem to square with your crowding out thesis. Uh, sorry, would you just repeat what you believe to be the facts, and I'll discuss it. That the. Um, the, the, the proportion of GDP spent on R&D in 1979 was higher than it was in... You mean the whole nation? For the whole nation, yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I see. Um, well... In other words, the, the British economy became less science-intensive. Yes. Over the well, it became period. less science-intensive because the British government, thank God, stopped wasting money on stupid projects like Concord. Uh, and it, that was by no means the only white elephant that consumed the whole nuclear industry... I mean, we were determined to have our own completely separate nuclear uh, reactors. This was a civil power from the Americans, um, supersonic aircraft, uh, as well as another example. We had a whole series of insane projects uh, which consumed a vast amount of R&D, which were complete white elephants, and thank God we stopped doing those things. Remove those from the equation and actually look what's going on in the civil economy. And there's been a fantastic phenomenon, not just in Britain, but globally. If you look back in the 70s, globally, most R&D, and this means civil R&D, across the Western world, including the United States, was funded by the state. I mean, there was a time when even in America, two-thirds of all civil R&D was funded by the state. And if a company wanted to do R&D, would you believe it? They wrote a grant, as if they were a charity. And it finally dawned on the governments across the globe that this was insane, that you could leave it to the free. And what we've seen in the last 30 years is an astonishing shift. Governments globally in the Western world have stopped funding R&D, civil R&D. The private sector has more than taken over. And without anyone noticing, we've seen a fantastic privatisation of R&D. Not academic science, that's different, but R&D, which is a much bigger budget, Mm. has become private everywhere. Has it become more effective? One one could argue that that, uh, the effectiveness of R&D... R&D productivity has uh, declined uh, since the since the 1970s. It's obviously the, ca- the case in, in, in pharmaceuticals. Perhaps it's the case more generally. Well, sorry. And I was just to add uh, the, 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 the rate of uh, uh, growth of the, of the British economy since uh, the Thatcher period has, has been lower on average than in the pre-Thatcher period. I, pers- I can take the two points. I have no doubt that the rate of economic growth has slowed since the Thatcher-Reagan Uh, globalization, free market, neoliberal revolution. I think that anyone looking at that revolution, well, I'm going to quote um, uh, your own uh, chapter title in your own book, your own recent book, The Client Fall of the British Economy. Um, 
where you talk about the rulers' revolt. I think it's very clear that the 30 years of the Keynesian Bretton Woods years were economically and in terms of social justice the best the world has ever witnessed. Rates of economic growth in places like America, let's look at America, the iconic economy, something like 4% a year for 30 years. Since then, it's only been 2.5% a year. We see parallel changes in Britain. There's no doubt in my mind, and it, I, I come to these conclusions reluctantly because I started off as a classical liberal, that the neoliberal experiment has effectively failed in terms of raising GDP per capita, in raising total factor productivity, Rates of growth of total factor productivity declined almost the day Thatcher and Reagan became heads of government. It was most extraordinary. What we've seen under globalization, I think, is a shift from industry, from research and development and competition, into basically opening up global markets and getting cheap foreign labor and also cheap foreign markets, easy access foreign markets, and going away from competitive markets to much less competitive markets, which has made a small number of rich people very much richer and has been bad for everyone else in the Western world. Obviously, it's been very good for the third world, but that's a separate argument. So um, I have no doubt. But And there's a very interesting compar uh, comparison the other way. If you look at the 1930s, one of the most interesting things about the 30s, this terrible period of ter terrible uh, uh, decline, the private investment in research and development in America and Britain was huge. So what we seem to see is that industrialists will invest in R&D if there aren't easier options. But if easier options turn up, then they'll go for the easier options. So the question, therefore, is how do you run an economy? And it's really in a sense for the government to say, are we going to allow our industrialists to get away from competition and simply uh, exploit cheap foreign labor and sell into easy access foreign markets? Or are we going to, in a sense, I don't want to sound like Tony Benn, but in a sense, put a wall around our economy so that our industrialists have no choice but to compete? These are very interesting geopolitical questions, which are shockingly rarely raised. I'd like to just go back a little bit to to, um, to an issue that, that, that we both addressed in the 80s and, and early 90s, which is pertinent here. And that is the relationship between national investments in, in R&D and national rates of economic growth. Um, and we both put forward the argument that there, there was uh, no positive correlation between these, um, these numbers. And I, I think I, I recall correctly that, that, um, that uh, uh, experts in science policy as well as uh, scientists were incredulous and thought that we lost a few marbles along the along the way. How did you come to this this conclusion? Well, I'm a biochemist by training, and I simply looked at the data. Uh, it was as simple as that. Um, but forgetting what I did, um, I mean, well, I looked at the data, and I, I, I could simply see that countries like uh, Germany and Japan. Well, forget what I did. The data has been brought up to date by the OECD, and I think one of the most interesting studies that's been done in this area is the OECD study of 2003, and of course, sources of economic growth in OECD countries, 2003, it's on the web. And they are incredulous, exactly as you described. They cannot believe their own findings. And let me tell you what they re re reported. And theirs was a much more meticulous study than mine, though I did exactly the same thing. It's just that they'd done it better. They're professional economists and they had resources that I didn't have. Also, they can do stats and things in a way that I'm not nearly so good at. What the OECD found very clearly 
was an astonishingly tight correlation between the private funding of R&D and national economic growth. They were looking at the entire OECD family of countries over a 29-year period, and they were making time measures so they could actually try to correlate cause and effect. Very clear, they showed, the more private funding of R&D, the more an economy grew. When it came to public funding, not only was there no correlation, it was actually negative, and they concluded that crowding out was happening. What the OECD found was that the more the public sector invested in R&D, the slower the rate of economic growth, and it seemed to be because of crowding out. So what I did, and I did exactly the same analysis using OECD data back in the 80s, I simply made exactly the same correlations. The OECD, even in the 80s, was telling us what was privately funded, what was publicly funded, and I then went and got the rates of GDP per capita growth for the major countries and did exactly the same as the OECD there was a good correlation between private funding and economic growth, a negative correlation with public funding. There was also crowding out. You could show that very clearly. But I didn't do it as professionally as the OECD. But that's what mm. I did. Uh, I think uh, at this point, I'd say that, 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 that my analysis of the figures, at least from the 60s, and, 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 uh, uh, is slightly different to that. That's to say that, that if you looked at British uh, civil R&D, indeed British industrially funded uh, civil R&D, it was relatively high um, in, into the late 1960s, and the rate of British economic growth was was low. And this wasn't because the British were bad at exploiting the the, the, the research. I think I think in, in the, there was even there a, 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 an element of an inverse correlation between national growth uh, rates and national uh, privately funded. Civil R&D. Well, let's just look at that a bit, because the 60s actually were good good rates of economic growth for Britain. Mm -hmm. It's just they were bad compared to what was going on in the miracle years in Europe. Yeah. But I mean, those are the years when Harold Wilson, I think actually technically 1958, but those are the years when Harold Wilson was going around saying you never had it so good, because rates of economic growth were, in fact, fantastic historically. It's just that we were the old country... Uh, we hadn't got rid of, we hadn't cleared up some of the post-war things that France and Germany and the others were doing amazingly well. Um, but in fact, we were doing quite well. But in as much as the private funding of R&D, um, a lot of that I suspect, though here I'm going to sound tentative because this is your area and not mine, and this is why I'm much more interested in OECD data, but I'll come back to that in a second. A lot of that private funding of R&D might have actually been private contractors meeting government targets. I mean, the government had a whole series of white elephant projects, you know, Concord, nuclear power, the whole series of them. And in, in as much as private contractors were meeting those targets, they would have been investing in R&D. Mm. What makes the OECD data so much higher is that you're looking at 29 different countries, um, no more actually, but anyway, you're looking at a very large number of countries, a very, very large number of years. And so you remove the element, because every country has its own quirks. You know, If you have a national civil aviation industry, you're going to spend much more on civil R&D than if you don't. Mm. Um, and that's why I find the OECD data so powerful, mm -hmm. because it, it smooths all those out and their evidence. Mm -hmm. And also, it's so powerful, because the OECD themselves are horrified by their own findings. Mm -hmm. And when there's no confirmation bias in social sciences, that tends to reinforce the value of what they're finding. And one very striking uh, uh, conclusion uh, that you report in your, in your first book, The Economic Laws of Scientific Research, is that the higher the GDP per capita of a country, the higher the R&D GDP ratio, that's to say rich countries spend more on R&D than, than poor countries. Now that's important, isn't it? Because the, um, the richer the country is, uh, at least for rich countries since 1945, 
the lower the rate of economic growth. That's to say, uh, the, it, it seems the main determinant of, of, uh, of, of, of rates of rates of growth is uh, how far uh, a country was away from the technological leader, the United States, uh, and uh, therefore we had a, a process of, of catch-up or, uh, or, or, or convergence. Now, putting those two things together then suggests that inverse correlation between all R&D, perhaps also uh, civil R&D, perhaps also industrially funded R&D and, and rates of economic, national rates of economic growth. You're absolutely right. You have to correct for that. And in fact, as it happens, I'm doing some studies making those sort of corrections. But you're absolutely right. So to summarise what you said, rich countries can grow only by doing R&D because they can only do it by research. There's no other way for a rich country to get richer. And, and therefore, you can only grow at about 2% a year because it's very hard doing new things. Catching up countries, if they have the right culture, Japan, South Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore, they can grow at 10% a year or even more because they're just copying. And they don't need to do R&D. And in fact, if they do R&D, they're wasting their national resources because why, do they, why are they doing R&D when... I mean, it's enough just to put a road in some of these places and you can stimulate economic growth fantastically, whereas we have to invent all sorts of clever mausoleum type things. So you're absolutely right. Um, you're going to get false... You're quite right. You're going to get false correlations if you look at uh, R&D investment and GDP per capita growth because the rich countries can grow only slowly and they're spending the most on R&D. So you've got to correct for that. And there are easy ways you can correct for that. But if you don't correct for that, you're an idiot. Well, that's a very important correction, isn't it? Because the the the, uh, the 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 main source of growth at national level, even for a rich country, is not uh, is 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 not R and D. I'm sorry. Uh, the main source of growth, even for, for most rich countries, is not national R and D. Well, what do you think it is then? It's uh, the product of R and D of the whole world. Ah, yes, that is true. But but. Uh, and, and other things as well. It's not just our yeah, idea to but, 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 but this is where our new work on the contribution good, I think, is very important. Country A cannot copy from country B unless country A has enough skilled scientists to understand the work of country B and to copy. So copying is an integral part of what research is. Right. This is very interesting. If one were to, to put in uh, the phrase economics of science into, in, into Google Scholar, um, very quickly, I think, be taken back to some foundational work of the late fifties and early early sixties, uh, which treated science as something called science uh, as a as a public good, uh, and out of that a whole series of arguments about the need for the state to to fund uh, uh, science have been uh, developed. Of course, states funded research, uh, uh, you know, often on a lavish scale before this particular. Uh, theoretical argument was uh, was made, but it became a became an important argument. This market failure argument for um, uh, uh, state funding of of, uh, of research. Now, in your work, you've you've uh, confronted that uh, that argument. Uh, tell us something about well, that. Um, you're absolutely right. This is fascinating for those of us who are not economists, i.e., are normal. If you look at the two foundational papers, the one by Ken Arrow and the one by Richard Nelson, they are insane. Because what they say is, we've looked at the world, and to our horror, companies are investing in R&D. That's what they say in these very early papers. Therefore, 
governments must invest in R&D to crowd out this private funding because nothing is worse for an economy than the private funding of R&D. And you read this and you think, what, what Alice in Wonderland world is this? And what you discover is that Ken Arrow and Richard Nelson, Richard Nelson's still alive and is a very nice man, by the way, so there's not an attack on him as a person, um, they subscribed to a model of maximum welfare in which there was an infinite number of producers, an infinite number of consumers, there was a perfect market. And they believed that any move away from a perfect market, where you had companies enjoying oligopolistic power, or even monopolistic power, reduced the welfare of the nation. That was the standard thinking of the 50s and 60s. Well, if companies invest in science then, of course, they're going to develop monopolistic advantage. They're going to develop a better computer or whatever. They're going to make money. And so Ken Arrow and Richard Nelson said in these papers that are still revered as some semi-divine dogma that we have to stop that from happening because we want to maximize welfare. Every company should be equally knowledgeable or equally ignorant. Therefore, we should give all the research funding to government so that we then have a multiplicity of millions of companies all competing with each other. This is an argument that is truly insane, and no one could possibly believe it now. And so everyone just worships these papers, but actually no one ever reads them anymore. Where we now are is with Paul Romer, and uh, who got a Nobel Prize last year. And what Paul Romer does is he encapsulates all this in one simple argument, which is equally wrong, by the way, but is wrong in a different way. What the story now is, go to Google, Government Funding of Science, Economic Growth, exactly as you've described, and the standard story is very simple. The standard story is, if I, Terence Keeley, incorporated, do research, you, David Edgerton Company Limited, will steal my ideas, and because you haven't invested in R&D the way I have, you'll actually have more money for marketing and advertising and product development than I do, and therefore you will steal my ideas, you will take the market, and you will bankrupt me. Therefore, no rational person will engage in science. That is now where we are now, and it's as I, I, I'm anticipating your next question, so I'll let you ask it, and it's a rubbish argument. But that is a standard argument. Yes, I mean, uh, it's, um, it, but this is the argument going back to the, to the late 50s and, and, and 60s, and this is the, free, the classic free rider uh, 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 argument. Um, and the, uh, of the, the, the solution was, was state funding of, of, of research. But very interestingly, um, these models don't take any account of, of the fact that uh, we live in a, in a multi-state world, and there would be arguments for a world state to fund um, research, but it, it can't actually be an argument for any individual state in a world of competing states. Uh, funding with the free rider problem applies there, uh, there as well. So yes, there, there is there is uh, that argument in uh, in play, uh, and it's it's wrong for an, for a number of reasons. But you've got a more profound argument yeah. than that one about the, well, first the of all, validity of this argument. First of all, empirically, it's simply not true. I mean, the Industrial Revolution took place in the classic night watchman state, which was Britain. The country that took over from Britain as the leader was, was the United States of America around 1890, and until 1940, their governments weren't funding science, or indeed much taxes only, whereas France and Germany and many of the other Jewish states were pouring money into science and, and markets and, and, and not getting anywhere. So, so empirically, it doesn't build up, and I, of course, I've already talked about the OECD data. But, I mean, if you just look at the way science is working in terms of sociology, if the free rider problem were true, scientists would be secretive and companies would be secretive. What you actually see is that companies, companies as well as scientists, do everything they can to come together 
to share knowledge. Why do companies, let alone academic scientists, publish papers? By definition, you, according to the free rider problem, you're sharing knowledge. Uh, why do companies come together? Why do we have Institute of Engineers? Why do we have Institute of Chemical Engineers? Why, when we look at what science actually is, do we see the most extraordinary sharing of knowledge? There's an article in the Financial Times just a couple of weeks ago about Alzheimer's research in which they describe, this is the Financial Times, how all the pharmaceutical companies and all the charities are coming together, sharing knowledge with each other, because none of them can make an advance by themselves. They're they're voluntarily competing companies sharing knowledge. And this is the history of all R&D. And the reason for this is that the free rider problem is a myth. What is actually happening, forget the, just look at what scientists do. And what we get, particularly in the 17th century in England, with the creation of such things as the Royal Society, which, by the way, made no distinction between applied and pure science. In those days, there was no such distinction. It was just research. People chose to come together because they made a very deep discovery. If I do a piece of science, I produce one piece of science. If you do a piece of science, you do one piece of science. Ten people do bits of science. They each produce one piece of science. Now imagine that we share. Now, for the cost of only doing one piece of science, we have access not to ten pieces of science, but something like a thousand novel combinations because you can combine work in all sorts of different ways. And it's from the recombination of ideas that you get real innovation. Now, I can't access the research of the other nine unless I am myself a researcher because this knowledge is tacit. The idea that I, for example, would go and read a paper in plasma physics, well, obviously it would be absurd. I, don't, I wouldn't even understand the title. So you've got to be a plasma physicist to understand plasma physics, etc., etc., etc. So you do research, and this is our key insight, I think, with me and Martin Ricketts, who's my co-author on this. He's a professor of economics at Buckingham, and he's been in, you know, we, we have a wonderful collaboration. I'm very grateful to have met him. What we've shown is the reason, and this, I think, is the key to economic growth in the Western world since the 17th century when it started. In the Western world, if you want an industrial revolution, you don't do research to make a discovery. You do research to access the discovery of others. If you do research to make a discovery, you will get one piece of science for your money. If you do research to access the research of 10 others, you will get a thousand combinations of ideas. And out of that combination, everyone will benefit. There are a thousand different combinations. The ten of us can each take our own combination. So it's an all-out advantage. But spillovers of knowledge, or whatever you want to call it, free writing, under those circumstances, that's why you do research. And the paper I'm giving here this afternoon, the, the, the essence is the free rider problem is the stake. If you actually look at what scientists, including industrial scientists, do, they do science not primarily to make their own discoveries, but to access the discoveries of others. So what you're saying is that that model of the economics of science from the late 50s, early early 60s, which suggests that science is a is a public good, uh, misunderstands because it's not it, science. Can, the products of research, let's call it that, cannot be a public good in the same way that the light from a lighthouse is a public good. We can all obviously see the light from the lighthouse, but we can't all read a scientific paper. Uh, and understand what it's about, or, or, or see some some other sort of product of, of research, and, and understand what's 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 going on. So you're saying 
that um, you have to uh, invest in your own scientific capabilities in order to, to understand, uh, uh, to be able to read a scientific paper. And indeed, perhaps one needs to go further than that, because it's not just your ability to read a scientific paper which is important, but uh, um, your ability to, to, um, uh, to acquire the tacit knowledge uh, that, that goes into the, the scientific uh, research endeavour. David, you have wholly understood the argument, uh, in this, which also has the benefit of being true, because that's actually how science organises are. You're absolutely right. It was never a public good. I, to use economist language, and we've carefully, you and I, excluded any form of jargon, but to use it just for this second, science is actually really quite excludable, to use economist language. Um, very few people can read a paper in science, only specialists. Uh, and therefore, if you want to take advantage of other people's science, which is the way to make money, by the way, um, you've got yourself to invest in science. You're just absolutely right. However, you're still uh, uh, um, arguing that this so far in our conversation on, on this particular topic, as if scientific research were one kind of thing. Uh, so it's not a public good, it's a contribution good. Surely we have to look in a little bit more detail. I mean, some companies do research with it, which they do keep secret. Uh, the military obviously do research that they keep uh, secret. Um, some companies, um, ob very obviously, while they publish uh, results of of, uh, of, of, of of research, uh, um, impose property rights on it through through patents. And academic researchers uh, uh, impose a kind of property right on uh, on on the papers that they that they that they they produce. So that there is a there is a uh, 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 there is there is more to the scientific uh, enterprise than, as it were, uh, learning to become a um, a, a, a better um, trawler in the pool of of uh, scientific knowledge well of course anyone who thinks that they understand the whole of science a very complicated thing is an idiot i mean anyone who says it's all this is, is obviously an idiot but having said that let me point out that secrecy you're absolutely right companies use secrecy a lot except that mansfield showed he's, he's now dead but he was a very distinguished economist of science and no one has contradicted his work showed that the average company can keep a secret only for about 12 to 18 months, which is no time at all. And the reason for that is the company's always sharing knowledge. They're also sharing staff. Staff always moving from one company to another. Industrial secrecy is essentially a myth. There's no question that companies use it and can maintain it for a short period of time, but it's amazingly mythological, actually, company secrecy, which is, by the way, why you get companies competing with each other next door in the same science park, because an awful lot of companies learn to understand that Actually, secrecy is a myth. But you're, of course, right. Of course, there's, there's, there's secret research. And there are all sorts of other strange forms of research that fit, don't fit within the contribution good. But if you had to pick one economic model that best explains what's going on in science, it would be the contribution good, which, amongst other things, would explain why there's no industrial secrecy in practice. Mm -hmm. To come back to patents, there has been no doubt about this. Patents, Marx or someone said that... Property is theft. Well, intellectual property is theft. There is no question about that. Patents are a way by which companies try to close down the competition. 
Thank God they largely fail. But patents are a scam and a disgrace. And we should stop industry doing that. But the whole point of taking out a patent is you can protect a monopoly so that you don't have to do any more R&D. The myth is that if you don't have patents, people won't do research because they're frightened about you know, spillovers and about free riding of their research. We now know that that model is completely false. The reality is companies have sought patents, or rather monopoly, from day one. A thousand years ago, company, if you look at medieval England, you see that people who owned a mill, a windmill or a water mill, would destroy competitive mills up or downstream or up and down wind because they just wanted a local monopoly. Patents are a very clever trick by, by which rich and powerful men, it was always men in those days, persuaded governments that they should receive these monopolies or they wouldn't do R&D, to which the answer is fine. Don't do R&D and see where it gets you. <laughs> One of the um, uh, new features of our uh, public life is the centrality of a certain discourse about innovation and creativity. We're all supposed to be innovative, entrepreneurial. I mean, there isn't a CV that doesn't claim uh, 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 innovations in, 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 in administration or teaching or if you're talking about academics or, or, or any other aspect of uh, uh, our life. We're all supposed to be terribly uh, 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 creative. But you seem to be saying something really rather interesting in that, in, that, in that context, which is that what appears to be innovation is to a very considerable extent the result of learning, uh, dare I say it, imitation. So what, what, uh, what enterprises that want to create something new do is fundamentally to steal uh, other people's ideas. Now that's very interesting. Another uh, uh, way in which your your idea could could be developed is to help understand why uh, creative institutions, far from being a universal feature of the economy, are in fact highly concentrated. As very particular firms have contributed. Uh, very large proportions of new inventions over the 20th uh, century. Very few universities uh, account for a, a big chunk of the Nobel Prizes of the, of the 20th and uh, 21st uh, uh, centuries. I, am I right in supposing that your contribution, good model, could help explain this? You're absolutely right. Let me take the first part of it about uh, entrepreneurs. You are quite right. Um, after Mrs. Thatcher came to power and Ronald Reagan in the States, suddenly we all had to worship entrepreneurs. I mean, I don't want to sound ridiculously unpleasant here, but actually an awful lot of entrepreneurs are really quite unpleasant people. I'm not going to name any of the people who are running the big five uh, IT companies that, that constantly uh, find themselves in very unpleasant news stories in the business pages because we all know who they are and what they're doing. Uh, but the idea that at first they should do no evil is clearly not right. Um, actually, I see entrepreneurs largely as pirates. I think they're almost always men. There's a 
very high degree of psychopathology and egomania there, I suspect. There's quite shocking greed. The salaries, these well, salaries is the wrong word, the remuneration these people reward themselves. And we all know, again, I'm not going to name any of these companies, but we all know there are big companies out there, household names, whose staff get paid absolutely minimal. We all know that all these companies engage in transfer pricing, so they make damn sure they don't pay any taxes because that might benefit other people other than themselves. These are semi-pirate activities. And uh, I do not share this idealistic view that entrepreneurs are to be worshipped. They are absolutely a stealing. I mean, who's done more for this world? Tim Berners-Lee or someone who runs the local, and I'm not going to go any further because I want to be sued, but obviously it's the Tim Berners-Lees of this world who've done so much more than those who've then gone off and created some gig economy stuff that basically exploits people without giving them proper contracts. So I agree with all of that. As for the congregation of researchers in particular companies, particularly universities or particular science parks, it's absolutely because the exchange of knowledge, you call it theft, at that level I'd call it the exchange of knowledge uh, is the way you get rich. It's not by creating your own knowledge. It is, in fact, by stealing other people's knowledge. But it's a trade at that level. And so you get a good department of physics and a good university, and they're all, it's called a water cooler moment. They're all sharing their ideas at that point, and it's mutually understood that's how you do it. You do, of course, claim your property right because you then publish the paper. It's called Entrepreneurial Exit. You publish your paper first, and everyone recognises that's what it is. Um, but it's all come from the exchange of knowledge. Entrepreneurs are largely thieves. I agree with you. I suppose the class, a classical sort of, sort of Austrian argument would be, well, um, uh, uh, we need people to become entrepreneurs to create these, uh, these new economic uh, uh, forms. It may, alas, be the case that it is uh, a, a certain kind of pathological segment of, the, of, uh, of, of humanity that that uh, that is prepared to do this. So we have to put up with it. That uh, the, the the horrors of, of personalities of entrepreneurs are the, are the, are the price we pay for uh, economic economic growth. That would be surely the classic, say, Schumpeterian argument. Yes, all, all the way back to von Mises. Um, yes, I think we do need entrepreneurs. And they do very important work because they arbitrage, they, they, they find opportunities that weren't there before. Um, but again, most commercial entrepreneurs are borrowing ideas from others. I remember Hans Krebs, he's now dead, but was a very, very great uh, biochemist. And I had the great privilege when I was doing my PhD, I was right next door to him. So to my astonishment, I spent quite a lot of my formative years as a biochemist chatting to one of the great minds of modern biochemistry. Everyone's heard of the Krebs cycle, mm. uh, and it was a great privilege. And he pointed out to me that great scientists take risks, great scientists are, in fact, risk-takers, um, and I could go further about that, but he absolutely believed that great scientists were entrepreneurs. They were scientific entrepreneurs. And it has much to do with personality as it had to do with intelligence. And by the way, I can assure you that many great scientists are also extremely unpleasant people. So I suspect it goes across the piece. We've all just been reading the biography of um, that artist, Lucian Freud, obviously a great artist, transparently a truly dreadful human being. And I fear, to, co to take your argument, that we do have to accept the entrepreneurial personality is the price we pay, but for heaven's sake, let's not worship these people as well. Mm. Terence, one of um, the many things you've, you've, you've done in, in, in your uh, uh, career is to become a, a vice-chancellor. Yeah. Um, uh, and you've 
very very clearly very committed to uh, to education and to to to, to learning. Um, tell us a little bit about about that. I mean, we we in universities are perhaps not as focused on on on, on teaching and, and learning as on on research on uh, on the entrepreneurial drive. Uh, to conquer the world of knowledge. Thank you for that uh, very kind question. Let's, uh, in fact, it's, well, let me just tell you a few facts and then I actually get back to you. Um, because I, there, was, there, is, there was, it's slightly different now, only one independent university in Britain in 2000, uh, the University of Buckingham, of which Mrs. Thatcher actually had been the first chancellor, the second chancellor. Um, and um, I, I had tired by then the extent of government regulation in the universities had become really quite, I thought, intolerable. Let us not forget that the London School of Economics in the year 2000, the year I moved to Buckingham, also found it intolerable and actually issued a statement that they were withdrawing from the public sector uh, because they found the level of regulation oppressive. And a very interesting story, Tony Blair, then the Prime Minister, responded very, very swiftly and literally halved the regulatory burden on the universities within weeks and sacked the head of the regulatory body, which may have been a reaction too far, but I think we all felt the regulations had become too onerous. I certainly had tired of them at at Cambridge, where I then happened to be, although Cambridge is a wonderful university, but I just had tired of that government uh, imposition. Uh, I mean, there were government inspectors coming into your lecture to see how well you lectured and stuff, and there were limits to what I thought was acceptable or not acceptable. And I went to Buckingham, and um, Buckingham was, was, was... Lots of disadvantages. Buckingham's a small country town that had absolutely no money. It does two-year degrees, which I actually am not a great fan of. There are all sorts of problems with Buckingham. But we had our moment in the sun. The great moment of Buckingham was when the National Student Survey of Satisfaction came out. Uh, And in 2004, we came top. We beat Oxford, we beat Cambridge, we certainly beat King's College London. I've no idea where King's came, but we certainly beat you. We beat absolutely everybody. And this was a very important moment for the University of Buckingham because it made a very important statement. We were then, it's different now, the only university in Britain that charged fees. Uh, we were a very small university, fewer than 2,000 students. We had no research or very little research of any distinction. We were really quite a, an unconsidered place. And yet, to our surprise, because we, everyone now tries to massage these data, we didn't because we didn't know about these things. We were as surprised as anyone else in a funny sort of way. To our surprise, ours were the most satisfied students in Britain, but it very quickly became obvious why. If the student pays, you jolly well look after that student. If the government pays, which was the situation everywhere, you look after the government. That message has been learnt, and of course, and Blair was very fair about this, actually, and the Tories as well, quite open about this. It made a big impact in British politics because government ministers could see, if we want happier students, paying is actually a good thing because it makes commitment there. However, having said all that, the real reason I believe in independent higher education is I believe researchers should be independent of the state. I am primarily a researcher. I became a pedagogue because that's what sort of thing Buckingham was. But I actually think it's more important that universities should speak truth under power, to use a cliche. And I think it is very obvious that universities are very careful in their public statements because they're terrified of offending research councils or or government. I actually think those concerns are hugely overplayed. Uh, I actually find, in my own experience, that research councils in the main are surprisingly, I don't mean surprisingly fair, I think they are fair. 
But there's undoubtedly a level of self-censorship that takes place in British higher education that would not take place if more universities are independent. So my prime motive for Buckingham was, in fact, to get away from a research culture where everyone seemed to be frightened of the government. But as it turned out, and this is the way entrepreneurs work, you make unexpected discoveries, we actually then made the one big thing that Buckingham ever did, which we showed that the government funding of universities actually damaged the student experience. And if you wanted a really good student experience, the student had to pay I'm going to ask you to, 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 to clarify what you mean by independent here. Do you mean for profit? Oh, good God, no. No, no, no. The, the for-profit sector sucks. Um, the, the, I, I really dislike the for-profit sector in higher education. It is not a coincidence that Donald Trump wanted to create a for-profit university. The one thing we very rapidly discovered at Buckingham was we... Absolutely, our peer group was the rest of the sector. We had nothing in common with the for-profits. The for-profits used to come to us and try to lure us with the usual lures, money and other things. And we very quickly found the for-profit sector a really, really undesirable sector in higher education. Of course, there's a role for the for-profit sector in life. Of course, there is, but not in higher education. No, no, no. We were a charity. The, the, the only difference between Buckingham and every other British university in those days, the differences are even less now, but in those days was we did not sign an annual contract with what was then called the Higher Education Funding Council, and every other British university did. But as I said, in 2000, the LSE threatened not to. That was the only difference, but we were a charity and trustees and all those, so like everyone else. Terence Keeley, thank you very much. <laughs> Blimey, that was fun. It was fun. 